You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. And now a reading from the book of Tolkien. In the third Lord of the Rings book, The Return of the King, uh, two of our heroes, Frodo and Sam, find themselves nearing the end of their long and arduous journey, and they are deep in the land of the enemy, the land of Mordor, and they are nearing the completion of their task. Well, that's nice. Which is the destruction of the one ring of power in the fires of Mount Doom. And they are in Morador. And between them and the completion of their task lies a great ruined land. An insurmountable distance. Innumerable enemies on all sides. No food. No water. And all around them a great shadow. A pervasive and persistent darkness. They're deeply discouraged, tired, hungry, thirsty, and at their wit's end. And so they lay down to rest, and despite his great weariness, Sam finds himself unable to sleep. And so he steps out, and he looks out on this barren, forsaken land, and looks to the sky And we read, far above the Ethelduith in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a bright star twinkle for a while. And the beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope Return to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been of defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of only himself. Now, For a moment, his own fate, and even his master's, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. Well, good morning, everyone. We end our series today on clear mysteries. This kind of look at Jesus and the Gospels, both the way in which Jesus taught and the way in which the Gospels teach about Jesus. And we have this parable of the ten virgins, and then Mikkel, of course, also read us this passage from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You might be wondering what the two have to do with each other. Hopefully I can kind of connect those dots. You see, as we said on the first Sunday of the series, we kind of quoted Emily Dickinson's poem, Tell the Truth, but Tell It Slant, like we have a hard time kind of hearing the truth, and 
It needs to come at us in ways that kind of diffuse our resistance to it. And great stories can do that. I think it's one of the reasons that Jesus often taught by using stories. In fact, it's one of the reasons I think all of Scripture uh, teaches by telling us stories. Like the primary genre that we find in the Scriptures themselves is just that. It's story. I mean, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, well, half of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, also half of Numbers, but Joshua and Judges, right? Well, you have to throw in all, all of those kind of law codes they pack in there a bit too, right? That's not really a story. That's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. But that's going to bring us to the story of the, of the ten virgins, I think, here in just a minute. But great stories tell this, right? And T.S. Eliot would say that uh, um, good poets steal, but, um, you know, good poets copy, excuse me. Eliot will say good poets copy, but great poets steal. <laughs> and I think, I think that's true. Like some of the stories that we like the best are stories that are actually mimicking the story of Scripture, whether it's uh, Tolkien or whether it's um, George Lucas's kind of Star Wars, we get this repetitive theme that what has been good has now been corrupted by that which is evil. And so if we resist that which is evil, right, that's a good thing. But what happens was when, when we do resist evil, the empire strikes back. Like that's, that's what happens. But when the empire strikes back, that's not the end of the story because there's a return, right? There's the return of the king or return of the Jedi or the return of the Christ. Like in, in the scripture story, the return of the Christ is the return uh, of that which is good. And what's being overcome is evil. And we get that same story in Star Wars, and we get that same story in The Lord of the Rings. So it's just that in The Lord of the Rings, it's Aragorn and Gandalf that come, right? And, and in Star Wars, it's Luke Skywalker. But in, in the scriptures, of course, it's the Christ. The Christ is returning, and the return of the Christ, or the, the coming of the Christ, is that which kind of transforms everything. It's that which we long for. It's that which we hope for. It's the, it's the essential thing that we need. And so Jesus tells us this parable of the ten virgins. I was reading a sermon on this particular parable that Augustine preached, you know, some 1,600 years ago. And uh, it was pretty fascinating how he kind of um, interpreted, I would, I would call it an, an imaginative exegesis, um, his interpretation of it. But, but here, here's a bit of what, uh, what Augustine had to say to his congregation. He first wanted to point out that, that there are ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. But he wants to quick point out that there are ten virgins, right? Like half of them might be wise and half of them might be foolish, but even the foolish ones are still virgins. And he makes the point that he thinks that the reason that it's determined that there were five is that there are five senses, right? We, we see, we hear, we taste, we smell, we touch. And those are the five ways in which we can be tempted and the five ways in which we can give over to temptation. But the idea that there are five wise virgins, and for that matter, five foolish virgins, is that they have overcome those temptations. They have not given in to things that might allure them with their sight, with what they hear, with what they taste, with what they smell, with what they touch. But what's interesting is, is the whole group has done that. 
All right, the wise ones and the foolish ones, that if they're all virgins, they've all kept themselves from those allurements. And if they've done so, right, then they've maintained the kind of moral standard or moral superiority, which kind of tells us something. Like if Augustine is right, then it's not enough just to kind of morally do what's right. Like it's a good thing, right, not to be led away by what you see or taste or smell or touch, but it's not, or hear, but it's not enough. Like, that, that gets us on the playing field, but we could still, we could do all those things and still be unprepared. We could do all those things and, and still be foolish, right, in the mind of the storyteller. And so the next point is, is that he made was that, um, that they carried, that they prepared their lamps. So he kind of, he, he begs the question, like, what would their lamp represent? And because this is a parable in Matthew, and this is the ending of the Matthew account, as he's reading Matthew, he's remembering that Jesus has already talked about a light, right? There's, you know, we are to be a city on a hill, we are to be a light on a, on a, on a stand, right? Don't put it under the bushel, right? We know the song. So that's part of the first one of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew. And there, and there the light, we are told, is our works, he says, let your works be a light to people so that they might see what you do and give glory to God. So live a life so that you are a light so people can see what you do and it will bring glory to God. And so at this point, Augustine starts to differentiate, right? So if they all have lamps, they've all been kind of doing things, right? Good things. But then he raises the question, what would be the difference between the wise doing good things and the foolish doing good things? And he postulates that those who are wise who do good things must be those who are doing them unto the Lord. They're fulfilling the, the last half of the idea back from Matthew 5, that our lives, we, we should live our lives as such that our works are seen by people and give glory to God. And he says, the difference between the wise and the foolish is that the wise are doing this to give glory to God and the foolish are doing this, but they're doing it for other reasons. They're doing it for reasons that are more self-serving, like they are benefiting from it. And that's kind of why in the end they have to go and buy oil from someone because they're trying to find that sense of approval elsewhere. But that the day will come where approval for your good works elsewhere will, will be shown to be insufficient, right? So the oil itself, he says. He says the oil itself, he thinks, represents love. Now, this is where his interpretation, I think, gets, becomes the most imaginative, right? So he starts to talk about, he goes, if you mixed oil and water together, what will happen? Well, it won't, you know, it won't go together, but the oil will rise to the top. So he goes, what's at the top of, of all those things, right, that we do? And he kind of borrows from the Apostle Paul that talks about faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, right, is charity, is the sense of caring. So he says, to have oil for your lamp is to have love, and let love be that which motivates all that you do, right? So the Apostle Paul, again, 
will say the whole law is summed up in this one statement, that you love one another. So love is essential. John will tell us that God is love. And so if God is love, and love is the basis of all the law, right? all the law can actually be kept if we're loving our neighbor, then Augustine again will say that the oil that you need for your lamp is love. So if your lamp is your works, that's great, and we all need good works. But good works without oil, lamps without oil, works without love are kind of useless, right? Because works without love end up serving ourselves instead of serving others. And so he's kind of getting down to, you know, how he's understanding the parable. He does raise the question that they all slept, right? So all of them have prepared their wicks. You know, half of them are wise or half of them are foolish, but all of them are kind of expecting the bridegroom. But they all fall asleep. And he says it might be, we might be able to kind of, kind of critique them for their sleep. But he says, if some are wise and some are foolish, if the wise ones are also sleeping, we must think of sleep as something that even the wise do. Because we just, we're all here kind of living our lives and we're all having some kind of expectation that, that the Lord will come, right? There's an expectation that the problem will get resolved. There's an expectation that, that the struggle, right, will come to an end, that there'll be a return of the king or a return of the Jedi or for us, the return of the Christ. And he says the fact that the Christ or that the bridegroom comes at midnight is completely unexpected. Like what wedding starts at midnight and, and who, who has to wait for the groom to show up? This is like the, the, the story is becoming particularly bizarre at this point. And his point simply is, is that it's at an unexpected time. That we don't, we don't know when we might see Christ. There's, this, is the, this is a perennial question, right? People ask this all the time. When do you think the Lord will return? And people have been guessing at it uh, since he left. I mean, he kind of said, no one knows. And we, we took that as a challenge. Well, I bet I can figure it out. <laughs> Not only does he tell us that no one knows, but when he's resurrected, the first thing the disciples ask him in the book of Acts, the very first thing, this is Acts chapter 1, verse 6. And let me tell you, the first five verses is just, a, is just a little bit of a prologue. Hey, in the first book I wrote about this. Now in the second book I'm going to write about that. Right, that's the first five verses. So in verse 6, when the, when the story starts to go, the disciples are the first one to speak, and they say, is now the time you're going to return your kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, oh, boys, you're just not getting it. And he told them that the time was the Father's choice. But I think we can read into that a bit more by the way he answered the second half of their question. Because the second half of their question was, is now the time, that's the first half, timing, that you return your kingdom to Israel. Like this is for Israel. And again, he answered the first one by saying, the time is what the Father knows. But he answers the second half of the question saying, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, 
you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So is this kingdom coming for Israel or to Israel? Well, yes, but not just to Israel, right? Because they're not just witnesses in Jerusalem or in Israel. They're witnesses. They're going to bear witness to this in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that the kingdom that's coming is not just to restore Israel, it's to restore the earth. And I think when we, when we realize that the gospel is for the whole earth, then we start to see also a clue about how to understand time. The timing of the kingdom. If the place, listen carefully, if the place of the kingdom is not just for this one place, but for all places then the timing of the kingdom is not just for one time, but for all time. It's not just something that we will experience at some point in the future. It's supposed to be something that we experience now. I teach this course called The Story of Scripture at the College. We're getting near the end of the semester. And of course, we're talking about how the story comes to an end. I've been lecturing multiple days on the book of Revelation, and I'm kind of laying this out for the students. This past Friday, we had a bunch of guests. Not to say that I don't like guests, but when you've, when you've worked up a certain amount of rapport with your students, right, and they understand who you are, and you understand who they are, and you're kind of working with a little bit of shorthand, and then all of a sudden, there's an extra 15 or 20 people in the room that don't know you. I'm thinking, oh, man. How am I going to navigate this? And so I tried my best to navigate it, but in doing so, I'm editing a lot of things in my head. Right? I'm like, ah, I don't want to say that. So I say, no, I don't want to say that. And it's, this is happening in my head as I'm lecturing. So, of course, if you, do, if you edit a lot, eventually you have extra time. Right? Because you planned to talk for 45 minutes, but you edited, you know, five or ten minutes out. If you're inside your head. So now I'm there, and it's too early to dismiss class, but it's too late to, to say something else because I've already kind of got to my final point. So I did what you almost have to do. Are there any questions? <laughs> Some sweet child, right? Student on the front row <laughs> raises her hand. It's like, Dr. Waddell. When do you think Jesus will return? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I explained to her and them part, partly what I explained to you about that question about timing, right? That the timing is not just a future timing, it's an all time, because the place is not just one place, it's all places. But then it struck me that Every time, every Sunday, when we come to the table, we talk about it being the table of the Lord, about it being the Lord's invitation that we would meet Him there. In fact, we actually say that this bread that is broken is the body of Christ. And this blood, or this wine or juice that's in this cup, is the shed blood of Christ. We pray prayers, Lord, send down your spirit upon these things. And we make claims that as we receive them, that we become those things, right? Then sent out into the world. 
Again, it sounds like the Apostle Paul. Did you all not know that your bodies, each and every individual body here, are members of the one and only body of Christ? And that body of Christ is the one and only temple of the Holy Spirit. And we confess in the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body, which is the body of Christ. Again, of which our bodies are members. And so the reason we have a benediction in a Christian service is if we've done what we're supposed to do the way we're supposed to do it, we would have been raptured up in worship. We would have sung songs and read scripture and prayed prayers and pronounced grace and peace to one another and, and eaten from the, the body and blood of Christ, received the welcome and the forgiveness that we receive at the table. I mean, who would want to leave such things? In a way, the benediction is at least part to say, hey, it's time to go home. It's time, it's time to leave this place. But as we leave this place, we are to carry and we are to be that which we received. I often quote Augustine again, not in the sermon, but at the table, when I say, as he said to his congregation, behold what you are, but become what you receive. Realize, you know, your own frailties and kind of the fact of your own finite humanity, but become Christ. And so I said to my student, do you want to know when Christ is coming? Well, then you tell me. When will you give a cup of water to someone who's thirsty? When will you feed someone who's hungry? When, you, when will you clothe someone who's naked? When will you welcome a stranger? When will you care for the sick? When will you visit a prisoner? Because we know when that happens, Christ will have come. He will have come to them through you. Now I know in this same chapter where this parable comes from, the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus will say, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. And so in some ways, Christ is the receiver of those graces. But also Christ is the giver of those graces. Again, to quote the Apostle Paul, he's getting a lot of airtime today. But he says, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And for me to, to live as Christ and to die as gain. All, all of that kind of integrated, kind of interconnected way of speaking. It's, it's quite mystical, really. But it, it really involves our bodies in a real time and in a real place. And here's the point. Here's the clear mystery. Is that we need to have the oil for our lamps, right? We need to have the love that actually motivates or, or provides the source, right, uh, of our good works, and we need to be prepared, but we don't simply need to be prepared for some final judgment. We need to be prepared for today, for this week. Like, right now is the time to live for Christ. Like, there's a measurement for it at some point, but the measurement is going to be measuring what we do now. Now's the day to receive the forgiveness that Christ has given for us. And now is the day to then go and share that forgiveness with others. That all the grace and all the love and all the mercy that we receive as, as God's people are not simply for us. I mean, it's not against us in any way, but it, that we're not simply the end product here. One way to think about this is 
Not so much to think about us being saved from the world, but rather being saved for the world. We are saved from sin and death, but we are saved for God's world. So that we too, like the original followers of Jesus before us, can embody this and carry it with us. That we can be not foolish virgins, virgins, that is, those who do good things, but just aren't thinking about them well and are worried about how they're seen and are unprepared. But wise virgins, we still live well, but we do so for the glory of God. And we realize that all of that is only legitimate when it is fueled by love. And when there's an expectation, right, that Christ is coming. Not just Christ is coming, but Christ is coming sooner than you think. Because Christ is going to come to you today. Because here in a minute, we're going to pray and we're going to share grace and peace with one another and we're going to come to the table. And this week, you'll have opportunity upon opportunity upon upon opportunity to quote-unquote trim your wicks, to be prepared. Be prepared for what? To be prepared to be Christ. Paul will say the fullness of God dwells within us. What a radical statement. The Eastern Church calls this theosis. My, my upbringing, we called it sanctification. But sometimes we misunderstood what we meant by sanctification and we thought it meant about just being moral or ethical. And we were like the foolish uh, virgins, right? Who kept themselves from the sight and touch and taste and smell, all those sensory things, not realizing that that wasn't enough. What we're called to be is to be Christ-like. The way we are Christ-like is to be filled with His Spirit. To love as He loved us. And to let our lives and our work be a light to others for the glory of God. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.